I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Precision Farming Dealer Podcast Series. In today's program, we get some present-day perspective on progressive ag technologies, which are already influencing on-farm decision-making. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you'll be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Well, the rapidly evolving field of ag tech is being driven by a confluence of factors, including automation and sensor densification of ag machinery, connection of this equipment to the internet, remote sensing via unmanned aerial systems, and cloud computing. Mix in the availability of venture capital and keeping up with the ag tech developments is challenging, even for the most tech-savvy individuals. But according to Dr. Scott Shearer, ag engineering professor at Ohio State, Tools like artificial intelligence will enable dealers and manufacturers to mine existing data sets to extract patterns that will inform the decision-making process. In today's Precision Farming Dealer podcast, Scott dissects a few of the practical and progressive applications of machine learning technologies, highlighted by recent research that illustrates the infield value of an evolving neural network. I'm going to share some of the things we're doing at Ohio State. I'm also going to share some of the things I think they're going to change your businesses in some respects. I'm going to talk about the future. I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I used to talk about the future being 15, 20 years out. Then I started talking about it being 5 to 10 years out. Now I'm starting to talk about it being a few years out. When you see some of the things I'm going to talk about, I think you'll probably agree with me in some respects. One of the things that's, that's happening right now it's really kind of interesting because everybody realizes that when you go around the globe, everybody needs to eat. And so when you look at agriculture, it's very disorganized. What I mean by disorganized, I'm not talking about you being disorganized. What I'm talking about is agriculture is really in the hands of multiple individuals. It's, it's not been rolled up underneath big corporations. We don't have farming corporations per se. We still have a lot of independent business people in, in, in some respects. But what's happening is, Everybody realizes that data is going to consolidate agriculture in some respects. And so when you look at these ag tech startups, okay, tremendous amount of venture capital going into ag technology right now. Started out in the Silicon Valley, and I think everybody recognizes that. We got a company in, in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio now, a venture capitalist, Drive Capital. Their first capital raise is $250 million. Their second capital raise is $350 million. Now they're into a third round at about 500 million. They want to be in agriculture, okay? Everybody wants to be in agriculture now. But because of that, we have a lot of startup businesses. The reality of it is only about 10% of these startup businesses are gonna be successful, okay? I'm gonna talk about a couple of them a little bit later on, but just understand there's a lot of people looking at what you're doing and trying to figure out how they can get in the middle of it in some respects. So I'm gonna talk about uh, neural networks, okay? I won't go too deep into them, but suffice it to say, it's, it's a computer representation of what's really going on in the human brain. The example I'm gonna use is teaching a child to pour milk. Now, you probably, most of you have had that experience, you know, if you're a father, mother, whatever, uh, grandparent. You know, it's, it's something about t tipping that carton over, over and having that glass in the right position and making certain that that first bit of milk that comes out makes it into the glass. And you know that most children learn to do that, but it usually takes them a few tries, right? Well, if you want to think about it, that's, that's really human learning 
But what we're trying to do is emulate that in computers today. I'm going to show you some of the stuff we're doing. But really, um, there's a representation of, of the nerve cells, if you will, in digital format today. And that's really uh, some of what we're going to talk about. And I'm not going to get too deep into that. But um, suffice it to say, <laughs> there's lots of, of, of nerve cells or neurons in the brain. I mean, you know, billions of them, if you want to think of it that way. And we're beginning to represent that in, in, in digital situation. As a, as a faculty member, I had to put something up like this because I got a PhD student. And I'm going to show you what Chris is doing, but I'm going to try to, try to put it in terms that at least I understand. Hopefully you'll understand. Um, Chris is a really talented graduate student, and he comes in every day. He's, he's, we, we have a lot of other faculty members at Ohio State that are really talented. Chris has been taking classes, and, and you know he comes in and tells me all the great things that are going on with artificial intelligence and the latest and greatest. He gives me images like this all the time. And I don't know about most of you, but there's a lot of, a lot of Greek in that to me. The, the thing that I want you to understand is you got input and you got output, and somewhere in the middle you weight these neurons or nodes, okay? And those, those weights are really multiplying factors, okay? And then it gets kind of complex. We started out with simple things like this where we kind of had hidden layers of nodes Notice you're all looking at me like, this guy's nuts. Am I ever going to see this in agriculture? Wait till you some, see some of the stuff we're going to be able to do. This is a recurrent neural network. It's really good with time series. Okay, what's time series? Well, rainfall events would be a good example of time series. Got a half inch of rain yesterday. Last week we got an inch of rain. Those are time series. And think about how important precipitation is in agriculture. The one that uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on are the convolutional neural networks. Think about we got an image, okay? We took an image of a plant that maybe has a disease associated with it. And what we do is we, we do a convolution of that image and we take kind of a small mask or a small subset of that image and then we do another convolution of that and we go across that until we get out to that final layer of nodes where we get an output. We train these neural network classifiers. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you some of what's going on there. But the neat stuff that's going to occur, I'm going to try to give you some of that too. This is what Chris put together because he's training the neural network classifiers to recognize things like nitrogen deficiencies in corn plants. Think about that. The mindset that I have is, and, and I don't have a lot of experience, but crop scouts. We know that most crop scouts probably don't go any further into the field, especially in August or July in in the middle of Ohio, much more than about 50 feet, and they usually go in from a county road or a farm road. And with that mindset, in some respects, those crop scouts are looking at about 10 to 15% of the field and making a decision as to how they're going to manage the rest of the field. Hey, I get it. I've been in cornfields when they're, the corn plant's 10 foot tall and it's 90, 95 degrees, humid day in August. It's not too fun walking through those fields. But stop and think about what are we going to put in the middle of those fields to figure out what's going on? We've been doing this at Ohio State. We use a multi-rotor drone. Now, first thing is we've flown over the field with a fixed wing. We do it pretty quickly. Um, we take a lot of images. I know there's a, a drone company here uh, today, unmanned aerial systems company. We quit stitching images. There's a lot of people that focus on that. You go over the field and you take a bunch of images and then you come back and you post-process the data and you try to stitch all of those images together. We don't do that anymore. We just look at the center of the image Take about three or 400 images, gives us a pretty good indication of what's going on in the field. The only thing we're looking for is crop vigor. Then we come back with this multi-rotor drone, and on the end of that pendant, or the stinger as we call it, we have a camera head that we drop down into the plant canopy. Now, for corn farmers, or people around corn producers, 
Uh, one of the first things we recognize is when there's nitrogen deficiency in the plant, we see that in the lower leaves first, right? By the time we see it in the top of the corn plant, it might be kind of late to do a lot about it. I mean, we can go in and we can do a rescue nitrogen application, but the question is, did that occur during the reproductive cycle, and how much yield did we lose? We see that the lower part of the corn plant, though, might be able to go in and do something about it. And, and so we're kind of changing the way we look at drones, unmanned aerial systems. You can talk about fancy cameras, you know, multispectral, thermal, hyperspectral cameras. We got started with the Air Force Research Laboratory, okay, near Dayton, Ohio. They got the coolest toys. My, my, my recollection was I was on, on the base and they took me up in one of their towers or whatever and they showed me their, their 1.8 gigapixel camera. I could read license plates off of cars about 12 miles away. Okay, it was really cool technology. We're not using cool technology. We built this camera head and we're using Raspberry Pi cameras, about eight megapixels, about $27 a piece, RGB, nothing fancy. We're using Raspberry Pis too because that's what controls the camera. We put four of those in that camera head and that's what we're dropping down into the, the, into the crop. So Chris, my PhD student, this is his home for the summer. I give him this trailer to live in. And he goes out to the field and then he just kind of lives there. He doesn't really do that, but that's what I've been telling him. I, brought, I bought Chris a, a really high-end PC. I got him that Dell Tower. And then I got him, got him two of those uh, <laughs> NVIDIA Titan um, graphical processing units. So that's where Chris does all of his number crunching. He's really happy, but uh, we brought that thing to its knees the other day in terms of training neural networks, okay? And so what I want to do is talk about some of what we're doing. Chris went out in the field, took a lot of images last summer of soybean plants with different problems. You got sudden death sy syndrome, lower left-hand corner, you got frog-eye leaf spot, kind of in the middle there, you got a healthy leaf, and then you got dicamba damage. Most people recognize most of those, but how do you give a computer the ability to distinguish between those diseases in some respects? By the way, the frog-eye leaf spot isn't necessarily the easiest one to look at. Chris went out and collected about 4,000 images a year ago. He went out in the field and did about 7,000 images of corn plants with different problems. Well, Chris sets off to train his neural network classifier. It's a CAN program. Chris starts up his big honking PC and lets it spin for several days. Four and a half days later, we've trained the neural network classifier to recognize those images. Now, I can talk about the training process. We can go through that ad infinitum. But the important pro point of it is, we got to the point where he's at about 90, 90, 93% classification accuracy. So in other words, we take any of those images and he classifies them with about 93% accuracy. Now the question is, is that better than a human? Hmm. Some of the crop, crop scouts that I've run into, you know, they might be college students, they might be high school students have been trained. You know, talented young men and women. But the other thing is, is my neural network classifier gonna be as good as they are? Can I extend the capabilities of those crop scouts in some respects? More importantly, can I do that on the farm? Our goal is to leave the farm and leave the farmer with a map that says, do this to your cornfield, do this to your soybean field, and you'll make money doing it. It's not, I drive off the farm, and two or three days later you'll hear from me. It's not, you upload a bunch of images to the internet. We're almost to the point once we get the neural net network classifier trained, we can put the neural network classifier on the drone and have the drone indicate what the problem is in the field. We're just about there. This is our confusion matrix. And if you're confused right now, that's good because I am too. But the confusion matrix tells you how good a job you're doing of classifying your images. And what we do with all these images, we break them into a 
a training data set and then a test data set, but then we mix those data sets up all the time, okay? And that's the reason why this thing's going through so many times. But if you look at this one, Chris got to about 90, 92, 93% accuracy after about four and a half days. Now, if we would have let it go a little bit longer, he might have gotten up to 95%. But when I say training that classifier, it's much like humans learn. Yeah, some of it's memorization, some of it's experience, but it's all those experiences that, that come to reality. And what's happening is that neural network classifier is extracting features from those, those images. So what happens on corn? Well, we did the same thing on corn plants, and so we got nitrogen deficiency, upper left-hand corner. Uh, northern, lorn, uh, northern corn leaf blight, upper center. We have corn borer. That's pretty easy to tell. The insects basically is the, the, the leaves coming out of the world of the plant eat, eat through it, and so there's a bunch of holes in there. Phosphorus deficiency, lower, and then gray leaf spot to the right. Again, our confusion matrices, and what Chris was able to do is, first of all, discriminate between biotic and abiotic stresses. Biotic would be anything biology-induced, okay, so diseases, insects. Abiotic would be anything environmental, uh, nutrient deficiencies in some respects. On our nutrient deficiencies, we're about 86, 87% accurate. Between those two classes of biotic and abiotic, we were about 98% accurate. All right, you kind of bear with me at this point in time. Where's the value in this at, in some respects? Well, let me show you a company that's using a very similar technology. And this company was recently purchased by John Deere. The company was Blue River, Silicon Valley startup. You know, the Silicon Valley, a lot of the people out there, their focus on agriculture, they're, they're, they're really aligned with fruits and nuts, okay? Because it is California, right? Well, they produce a lot of fruits and nuts in California, and so that's their, that's their concept of agriculture in some respect. I hope there's nobody here from California. Blue River got started. What was, what was happening in the, in the valley out there is they were overseeding lettuce crops. Now, these lettuce crops are hand-harvested in the field and field-packed. One of the problems is um, you want very uniform size lettuce heads because it's going in a package that's a, a certain physical shape. What you have to do is overseed the lettuce, wait for the plants to come up, and then you go back and hoe out the plants you don't want to establish the final stand. If you get that stand just right, then at harvest time, a lot of those lettuce heads will be the same size when you go through the field and field pack. Now, what was happening is they were using laborers to go back in and hoe the plants out to achieve the final stand. Blue River says, hey, we think we can use a machine vision system, using artificial intelligence, to identify and count the lettuce plants. Then we'll very accurately spray an herbicide and kill the ones we don't want. Kind of a neat idea. And they got started doing that. <laughs> and initially, you know, everybody's thinking, well, Blue River's going to sell these machines. No. Blue River wanted to sell a service. So they were operating about eight to ten of these machines in the, in the valley, and uh, a lot of the farmers that were lettuce farmers, it was cheaper than using humans to do that, so that was kind of a neat thing. Well, I think two years ago, a little problem with Roundup-ready cotton in the uh, Mississippi River Valley, Roundup-resistant weeds. So Blue River says, hey, we'll take our machine down there and see if we can control the weeds in, uh, in Roundup-ready cotton. The problem is all these farmers have gone back to conventional genetics, if you would, and conventional crop protectants in some respects, the old herbicide um, that they used to use. Blue River was successful, and by the way, they started controlling weeds in cotton crops with only 5% of the normal amount of herbicide. They were spraying just the weeds themselves. So along comes dicamba drift, and the little problem in Arkansas, 
Blue River's thinking, hey, let's take our machine out there and see if we can control weeds and soybeans. What you have to begin thinking about now with this technology, this sea and spray technology is, what's the value of GMOs now? If Blue River and John Deere are successful, I think 50% of the value of GMOs just evaporated. Most of the GMOs today, or a significant quantity of them, are ones that are herbicide resistant. So now, and go one step further, again, this vision I have, anything becomes an herbicide. What? Everything, anything becomes an Yeah, I can heat up oil and spray it on the weed and kill it. So think about where we're headed in some respects, okay? Now, John Deere buys this technology, works pretty well at two to four miles an hour, but what speed do most, most grain farmers spray at? 15 mile an hour? So now the race is on. Who's gonna come up with the, 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 the first sea and spray technology that works at 15 miles an hour? So again, think about where things are headed in some respects. I love watching this stuff. In situ sensors that are internet connected, internet of things. I talk about my smartphone all the time. It's the way I'm connected. I'm connected with about three or four devices. I think we have about 18 billion internet connected devices. Oh, over Christmas, my daughter and son-in-law got me uh, one of those uh, Amazon devices where now I can turn lights off in and out, on and off at home from my smartphone. Oh, by the way, I can open my garage doors now too. <laughs> this is great technology. I don't know why I need to turn lights on at home when I'm not there. I don't know why, other than the fact, the other day I left and I couldn't remember whether or not I closed the garage door, so I got my cell phone out and checked. But everything's internet connected today. Think about all these devices in the field. We look at Lake Erie and some of our problems uh, with nutrient offsite movement, at least in the state of Ohio. Think about being able to control drainage structures. Yeah, we're gonna drain our fields in the springtime, we're gonna go in and plant them, but maybe during the summer we don't. All these drain control structures, if you will, are all internet connected. You know, we get out in Nebraska, they kinda got the other side of things, you get a little bit ways out there, they don't have enough water. And so the question becomes is, how do they manage their, their water in terms of irrigation? Tremendous opportunities coming in agriculture. Well, thank you, Scott, for sharing your vision for when and how the ag tech industry will evolve in the short and long term. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest precision farming news impacting your dealership by registering online for our free e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at PFD Editors and on our Precision Farming Dealer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. For Dr. Scott Shearer and our entire staff here with Precision Farming Dealer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <music>